0: Isaiah 35, beginning at the first verse. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it, It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and singing will flee away. Matthew um, chapter 9,
1: starting at verse 18. Chapter 9, starting at verse 18. While he was saying this, a ruler came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died but come and put your hands on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, go away, the girl is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, "'Have mercy on us, Son of David!' When he had gone indoors, the blind man came to him, and he asked them, "'Do you believe that I am able to do this?' "'Yes, Lord,' they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, "'According to your faith will it be done to you?' And their sight was restored." Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons.
2: I do uh, keep that part of the Bible open. Uh, We're going to be looking at that this morning. I'm James Brooks. Uh, If I haven't met you or spoken to you yet, uh, I'm one of the ministry team here, and welcome this morning. It's great to have you with us, and I'm excited that you're here while we uh, gather together to look at this part of God's Word see what it says. Many uh, people these days... I think, would say that Christianity is really old news. Or maybe not just old news, actually, but irrelevant and no news at all. The things that seem to rate in the news about Christianity these days are things that mock Jesus and his followers or that condemn, rightly, their moral failures. Those in our world seem to pride themselves priding themselves on on how intellectually virtuous they are, how we've moved on from immaturities and superstitions and religious explanation for things in the world. We don't need those anymore. Science has revealed the hard facts of life. There's no more gaps to be filled. Surely we can move on with life. And so comes the charge of irrelevancy. Society's moved on. Christianity is more and more sidelined not only is being a Christian frowned upon in many circles, there is all around us an undeniable social pressure that if you are one, then it would be, in fact, better for everyone if you just kept that nonsense to yourself. Although there still might be quite a number of points of of agreement on moral issues, holding to the underlying fundamental Christian beliefs about God, about His Son Jesus and about our world, is largely now seen as unsupportable. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you feel that pressure as well? It's the kind of pressure that can even start to undermine our faith in Jesus, leaving us questioning again, who is Jesus? Hesitating when it comes to making each of those little decisions along the way to follow him. Well, this morning as we look at Matthew chapter 9, we're going to be confronted with the reality that this evidence for Jesus simply can't be written off. Instead, the evidence for Jesus just continues to mount up, in fact. And we're also going to see how Jesus leaves us with the question of our response in the face of this mounting evidence. I pray that this morning we'll be roused in our confidence and, and courage to follow this one, who the evidence overwhelmingly points to. But firstly, before we get further into the passage, we need to see that the evidence that we're looking at is actually undeniable. You see, the miracles and amazing works that Jesus has been doing over the last few chapters, the past few weeks that we've seen in Matthew's Gospel account, well, they've been receiving quite a lot of publicity. It seems that whenever Jesus is in one place for a little while, he begins to get swamped. There's people everywhere coming to him. Every night, the house is packed out with People bringing those who are in need, and not kind of bringing them to just be disappointed, but things, but healings going on again and again in towns and cities of Galilee. Now, apart from us just seeing that Jesus is really doing lots of amazing things, this actually tells us something important. We need to read between the lines here. You see, if Jesus' miracles were just kind of tricks uh, that didn't last, then word would have gotten around. People would have stopped coming. Uh, With all these people coming to see him, there would have been an, in fact, ever-increasing, growing number of disgruntled former fans who now actually saw through this popular one's power, so-called. But this was just simply not the case. Again and again, people come to him, and they're amazed at what he does. They're not disappointed. The crowds in chapter nine, verse eight, they're filled with awe. Chapter nine, twenty-six, news of him spreads like wildfire. And what we read uh, just at the end of uh, what the reading today, verse thirty-three, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. It's Matthew chapter. I don't have it up here. There we go. Matthew chapter nine verses 18 to 34, page 963, if you missed it. Uh, In fact, at that point, I'll just mention, uh, there is an outline uh, of the talk today, uh, which uh, might help you as you follow along. I don't have a PowerPoint slide, uh, but if you didn't get one on the way in, there's uh, some more out there as well. What do they say in verse 33? Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel something special is going on, something momentous has come, someone momentous. The world around us now, looking back on history, would try and declare that actually the evidence for Jesus is really a myth, embellished stories like fairy tales, tales of miracles that were in reality clever tricks done to amaze simpletons. But that just doesn't fit with the evidence What we see here, in fact, what we see in that very next verse, verse 34, is that even those who oppose Jesus don't deny the reality of what he's doing. You see that there? Do you notice verse 34? The Pharisees said, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. The Pharisees don't say, they don't say at this point, Look, everyone, he's really doing nothing special. In fact, it's all just a trick, smoke and mirrors. That's what's going on here. That would be just the kind of thing, the perfect thing for them, that would undeniably discredit this one and stop people following, if in fact were true. But the reason they don't say that, the reason they don't say it is because they can't and they'd look like absolute fools for trying to do so. The evidence of people being healed is literally standing right in front of them, if you remember the man who was paralysed. Just think this week. Say this week you stood up, and you said maybe at your workplace or in a in a in a public place where people were listening to you that the earth really is flat uh, that smoking really does have tangible medicinal benefits and that even uh, that and even that housing in sydney uh, is still realistically affordable you would look like a fool wouldn't you well this Jesus, even his enemies, don't try and deny the miraculous evidence that's going on here. But instead, kind of clutching at straws, they turn to name-calling as a feeble attempt to influence others against him. Even later on, even in accounts outside of the biblical witness that we have of Jesus, uh, a man by the name of Josephus, who was a, a Jew, living in the Roman Empire, Uh, and about 93 AD, he published his uh, Annals, the the, um, History of the Jewish People, and he writes uh, about the time when Jesus was in Judea and Pilate was governor. He says, About this time there lived a man, uh, sorry, lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who performed surprising deeds. It must have been surprising indeed for people to think that this one was more than a man. But even another Jewish writing, this time in a Babylonian Jewish teaching, the Jewish writer there describes Jesus as one who practiced sorcery. Again, he's not denying that the miraculous is occurring by what Jesus is doing, but he's just descending to insults. For a world that prides itself now on evidence-based thinking, it doesn't actually seem to be able to face the facts here, to face the evidence here. The evidence of what Jesus is doing is undeniable, even by his enemies. So let's now look in a little bit more detail about how this evidence mounts up in the passage. Come with me to the start of our reading, chapter 9, verse 18. A ruler came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. But then something kind of, or someone rather, takes us on a different turn. This first little episode here in the passage is actually a kind of narrative sandwich. Um, Jesus meets one person, Jairus, uh, and then he gets interrupted along the way by someone else, uh, the, the bleeding woman, and then finally he sort of comes, gets to Jairus' house and resolves the issue that was raised at the start. There's kind of a, a sandwich going on. Now, what's going on? Why are these things together like this? Well, it's it's helpful to firstly see where things begin. In the first part, things begin with death. It's helpful to see where they end. Down in verse 25, 26, they end with life. And thirdly, in the middle, what's it about? Well, it's about healing, about cleansing, about Jesus bringing wholeness. the physical physical symbol there of the spiritual difference between death and life. Let's look a little bit closer. This man uh, we know is Jairus from uh, the other gospel accounts. He's someone who commands respect and has authority as a synagogue ruler. He's probably quite wealthy as well, able to access the cream of the medical profession when it comes to to his family, his precious daughter. Yet all of that's been to no avail. Death has come. Death has overcome his efforts. His daughter is dead and now he's on his knees. But notice in the story though, he's not on his knees in hopelessness and despair, but rather with confident appeal He comes to Jesus on his knees. My daughter has died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. I know you can do this, Jesus. Please be willing and come. And Jesus responds to Jairus' faith, doesn't he? On the way, Jesus meets someone else, a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. This, I think, sounds horrendous, and I think indeed it would have been. Not only just the constant bleeding, but the implications for her socially and spiritually. Her condition of being unclean, according to the laws of Israel. She would have been akin to the man with a leprous skin disease that we saw earlier in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8. Isolated from people and not allowed to approach God in the way that the people were, the people were to in the temple. So, despite the risk of ridicule and social abuse, she ventures out into the crowd. She knows something. She approaches Jesus secretly, but nonetheless in faith, because she has a certain confidence that Jesus has the power to heal her. And as she touches him, Unlike everything else and everyone else that she's touched, Jesus doesn't become unclean. Rather, he drives the uncleanness out of her body and brings wholeness. Her faith led to action. When she'd heard about Jesus, she believed and what she believed, she'd acted upon. Her faith led her to Jesus. And it's her faith that Jesus commends in his response there, doesn't he? As he say, Take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. Going on from there, Jesus comes to the spectacle of what would have been Jairus's house at that time. The issue that drew Jairus out in the first place, death, is all too present. Indeed, you can even hear it. As they walk up the street towards the house, the wailing of the family, of the friends, of the professional mourners fills the air. That was the way that grief was expressed, that mourning happened in this culture. And the account is quite striking in its simplicity, in its straightforwardness. Jesus puts the crowd out. He goes in and takes The dead girl by the hand. And she got up. New life. Restored life. Life brought to one who lay on the floor cold and dead. Jesus is showing that it's as easy for him to raise someone from the dead as it is for you or I to raise someone, rouse someone from sleep. I would have been surprised if news of this didn't spread. Jesus raises the dead. Jesus cleanses the unclean that they might be welcomed in again. And so the evidence mounts. In the next two episodes, which we'll look at a little more quickly, We see, firstly, two blind men uh, following Jesus, calling out after him. Be kind, Jesus. Have mercy, son of David, they call out. And again, it's their faith that has led them to Jesus. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Jesus asks. Yes, Lord, they reply. And they are healed, just as they trust Jesus. The object of their faith, is Jesus. It's not just kind of faith as in some neutral out there thing but it's faith, trust in Jesus, in something. The content of their faith, well that's what they know about him, about Jesus. He's the, the son of David, he's able to heal, he's able to restore the brokenness of the world and so they act on their faith. They come to him and are healed. Jesus opens the eyes of the blind, the evidence mounts. This last episode here, with a man unable to talk through demon possession, quite simply, Jesus drove the demon out and the mute man speaks and the crowd cheers, don't they? The mouth of the mute, the tongue of the mute is untangled and he declares the praise of God. The evidence mounts. Now, as this evidence mounts up, it's not just a pile of kind of unsorted data, like that heap of dirty washing in the corner. It actually leads us somewhere. In fact, it leads us towards what the faithful of Israel have been looking for. You see, for years now, the nation of Israel has been looking, longing, waiting for the one who was promised, for the one who would bring healing and wholeness, redemption and life, restoration and pour out blessing. This one is promised in the pages of Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, other Old Testament prophets. And they look those words there, look forward to a time that this one will bring where that which is parched will be nourished, that which is outcast will be cleansed and brought in, when streams of people, God's people, will come back to him and where he himself will come with justice and visibly take his rightful place. This evidence then says that this one, Jesus, is the promised and long-awaited King, just like neon signs or or maybe those lights on the rwf runway like I, I would love to be in the plane kind of flying down and landing on the runway and kind of the lights kind of doing their what is it's kind of a strobe thing kind of going on it's like that that's what's going on here in these verses The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is preached to the poor. What does it all mean? God's King is here. And what about the responses to him? Not surprisingly, there's numerous in the passages. We see mockery, don't we? Those who don't believe that he has the power in, in the face of death simply laugh at him when he comes in and says what he says about the girl. They are waiting for him to make a fool of himself. But who was it that ended up looking foolish when the girl who was dead comes out alive with her family? It's easy to mock now, easy to mock before you've seen the evidence, but mocking loses traction when the clear evidence is revealed. There's also name-calling, kind of insults. The Pharisees, they reject Jesus. Not because they say he's not doing the things that he's doing, but by saying that the power that he's doing those things by is not from God, is not good, but is evil, is of the devil. They can't deny his power, and so they try and twist where it's from. But what's actually going on for them here is not a head issue, as if they're struggling to grasp the logic of what's going on here. It's actually a heart issue. What the heart desires, the will chooses and the mind justifies. And so because they don't want him, because they see in Jesus a challenge to their pride, a challenge to their power, In the society. They deny what is plain for all to see. Even the crowd around them declares nothing like this has ever been seen. This sidestepping of the facts, the putting aside of the plain evidence people did it back then. It's not new, is it? Just like the Pharisees, our world is eager to shift the focus from themselves and so avoid the necessity of coming to terms with their personal response to Jesus. But clearly also throughout our passage today there's another response, isn't there? The response of faith. Trust in him. Not faith out there but faith in Jesus. Reliance upon Jesus. And that's what we're being drawn towards by the evidence. That's where the mounting evidence leads. We see again and again people who have heard of Jesus, coming to him in faith and receiving blessing. Each of them that we see in the stories believes that Jesus is someone special and so comes to him. But, but what about you? how will you respond to the mounting evidence? How will you respond to Jesus? As you think about where you're standing, or sitting rather, you might be standing where the mocking crowd are, or the Pharisees. But just because you're there now, just because you're there at this moment, it doesn't actually mean that you have to stay there. I too was there once. You might be not sure yet. You might want to draw near a little just to see the evidence a little clearer in a bit more detail. Have some of your questions answered first before you make your decision. Not being sure yet is not necessarily a bad thing. But I would say doing nothing about it and so staying unsure, that's a little less wise. You might want to respond by faith, by trusting Jesus, but but you know that you've still got kind of doubts there, questions that you'd like to have answered. Again, questions and doubts, they're not necessarily bad things, but ignoring them and then kind of letting them undermine your faith, that, again, is less than wise. Ask, seek, knock, Jesus says. Come and Talk. Come and talk to me. Come and talk to another Christian you know. Come to Simply Christianity over the next few weeks. There is a next step for you. Have courage to take it. What about if you are trusting Jesus? What's the next step for you? Well, I'd say that the next step is really what Paul is getting at in... Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, those verses there. He says, keep going. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because, why? Because God is working in you, helping you to love and trust him. Keep taking the next step in trusting Jesus. That means taking the next step in trusting Jesus with your decisions, decisions about life, about money, about giving, about housing and where you live, about work, about relationships. Trusting Jesus with your plan for the future, holding it with an open hand. You can't see everything or know the future, but you know the God who does And you can trust his wisdom in his word. And so step forward following him. What's he calling you to do? Sometimes that can be hardest when it seems like his answer is just to wait patiently for a time. Taking the next step in trusting Jesus can mean taking the step of trusting Jesus in the face of suffering and hardship. Jesus is a king who truly meets those who are suffering, those in need with fullness, with restoration, with life. But he's also one who calls us to follow him in suffering now. The fullness of restoration is still to come. Let me say that if you are not suffering or going through some kind of hardship now, then indeed, thank God that he is sparing you for a time. This is not normal for now. But it will be normal when he returns when all suffering and hardship will be gone. Let's walk together, trusting him in suffering, praying for joy through our tears and thanking God when we see him enabling that. It'll mean trusting Jesus with our children. What does it not look like? Well, it doesn't look like stressing with great stress over their decisions, trying to control their future. The next step in trusting Jesus means praying and leading our kids towards godly maturity as responsible adults, rather than perpetually parenting by holding on to the reins. And responding in faith will also include being content to look foolish in the eyes of this world. Being okay with maybe sometimes smelling like death to some. Letting the the core of your identity, one of God's people, bubble out, even if it means a few feathers are ruffled. Well, this will only be for a time, though, until every eye sees, until every tongue confesses. How will you respond to the mounting evidence for Jesus as the King? Come with me and let's take the next step in faith. Amen.